Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That helps with accountability. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming it at novices and strugglers. How often we encourage people to read the Bible, but we don't give them a workable plan to do it. A chapter a day is something everyone can do. More information is available about the Word Diet, the book, at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're starting into the book of Genesis today, a great book, uh, one of my favorites to teach, and I just love going through it. Beautiful stuff, tons of application, wonderful narratives that we'll dig into. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Previously, we did the book of Revelation, and those 28 shows are available on Spotify and SoundCloud. Today, we're just going to talk about one verse, maybe two, but probably just one verse in the beginning and talk about things from the very origins of time and the origins of the Bible. Lord, be with us as we dig into Genesis. Help us to understand who you are and what you want from us every time we we get into the scriptures. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station of the show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting Genesis today, and in this first segment, I've got a bunch of introductory remarks to make. Not surprising, given that we're starting a new book, but also that we're starting Genesis. So in essence, we're starting the Bible. So let's let's go to big picture context here, right? That Genesis is the beginning of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, which has the creation of nature and man to open things up. Then Genesis 3, we've got original sin and the mess that follows. That's called the fall of man. And then right away, late in Genesis 3, we've got God establishing a rescue plan through grace and faith, and ultimately that'll be best manifested through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, the issue here is convincing us we have a problem, that we have sin and therefore need a solution and a savior. There are other ways to to be saved, so we think, right? We imagine a workspace salvation or we can be good enough, but uh, right from the beginning, God is trying to show us that our efforts will not be enough. From there, we end up with recreation through Noah and the ark, and then there's a mess after that, so that doesn't go very well. And then ultimately, Genesis 12 uh, parks and then unfolds much more slowly through the story of Abram as it develops into the nation of Israel over the last three quarters of Genesis. So here we've got a deep relationship between Abram and God, and It then takes us to Moses, which is um, monotheism and convincing them that God is one, or as uh, C.S. Lewis puts it, that God is one and he's concerned about right conduct. And so there we have uh, a a great development of the law. Of course, if you know the rest of the Old Testament, that's a mixed bag as well. The Israelites continue to struggle with monotheism, at least until the exile, and it becomes increasingly clear that the law can both be misapplied, and it's inherently limited. And that takes us ultimately to the ministry of Jesus, the new covenant, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and Pentecost, and the like. 
Now, Genesis means birth, genealogy, or history of origin. The Greek title is Cosmo, which means the origin of the cosmos, and there's certainly that here as well. And the Hebrew word is Bereshith, the title, and it means in the beginning. The Hebrew title is always taken from the first word or two from the Hebrew scripture. So it's the beginning of a few things, right? It's the beginning of the first five books of the law, what's called the Pentateuch. And that's interesting in this context because Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 11, is largely pre-law. That doesn't get going in earnest until Exodus 20, but yet the books are considered a single unit of five uh, books of the Bible. The bigger issue here is that it is the beginning in the sense of chronology, but also what is foundational. I like what the Life Application Bible says here. It is the story of God's purpose and plan for his creation. As the book of beginnings, Genesis sets the stage for the entire Bible. It reveals the person and nature of God, creator, sustainer, judge, redeemer, the value and dignity of human beings, made in God's image, saved by grace, used by God in the world, the tragedy and consequences of sin, the fall, separation from God, judgment, and the promise and assurance of salvation, covenant, forgiveness, promised Messiah. Now, the author of the book is unknown. There's none claimed within the text. It's usually assumed to be written or at least compiled by Moses, along with the rest of the Pentateuch. And if so, that was probably during the wilderness wanderings in the 14th century BC, after having been on Mount Sinai with God. There are a couple of questions here, particularly with the idea that Moses wrote this. The first is that biblical writings typically are produced immediately after the events they describe. And if that's the pattern here, you would imagine this to be written by Joseph or one of his contemporaries. The second is, is if it's not written before Moses, then the Hebrews had no written record in Egypt to read and meditate upon. And this is not a fatal flaw at all, right? It could easily be that oral tradition, uh, we know that's a strong thing in that time. Maybe oral tradition is sufficient. In any case, I like what Leon Cass says here, readers who take up the book of Genesis, the first time or afresh, without presuppositions, find themselves in a position not unlike Abraham's. A commanding but unidentified voice is addressing us from out of the text, speaking to us right away about things that we humans could not by ourselves know anything about. We readers are being invited, as was Abraham, to proceed trustingly and courageously without knowing what he might want from us. And I think that's the way to think about this book as you go into it. Maybe this is the first time you've read it, and it will seem wonderful, I promise you. But maybe you've read it many, many times before. And so if that's the case, I just want to encourage you to try to read it afresh. Maybe read from a different translation or something that will help you in that pursuit. One thing we'll see in Genesis is how much it points to Jesus. Again, we've already made the reference to Genesis 3, where Jesus will be introduced there. Uh, Romans 5 describes Jesus as the second Adam. It describes him as righteous Abel, who offered a better sacrifice. That's in Hebrews 11:4, And also who was slain and whose blood was shed. Matthew 23, 35. And then this from Hebrews 12, 23 and 24. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is like Noah, the vehicle through which humanity is saved. 
He's like Abraham, the father of a new nation. He's like Isaac on the altar through his father. And he's like Joseph sold for a bag of silver. Of course, Genesis covers key biblical figures as well. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and Babel. And that's just in the first 11 chapters. Then you have quarters of Genesis devoted to Abraham, Sarah and Isaac, uh, the story of Jacob and then Joseph in the last quarter. This is more than half of the faithful of Hebrews 11. It also contains the oldest and most profound definition of faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. In telling us about these biblical figures, I'm struck so much by the power of narrative, especially in chapters 12 and following. There's so much here on family and community, on both private and public life. And eventually this is extended to a metaphor for us and God, that we are his children and the church is his spouse. Of course, we're described as a spouse as well. Are we going to be faithful to God in a relationship that is similar to marriage? In particular with Abraham, we have the move from one man to one household, to one clan or tribe, to a nation. In putting Genesis before Exodus, this is not just a chronological consideration, but it's an emphasis on the personal over the political. In other words, if we can't get it right in the family, we're not going to be able to get it right in the nation or the world. And much of Genesis is trying to work out, can God work well with a family? Because you can't get to a nation if you can't get the family figured out. In all of this, I like what Jonathan Sachs says here. The protagonists of Genesis are astonishingly human, ordinary people made extraordinary by their willingness to follow God. We're not going to see a lot of happily ever after stories here. We're going to see a lot of warts, in fact, right? A lot of uh, failures, disappointments, troubles, struggles. But in all of it, people walking faithfully, more or less, with God and developing in their faith and in their walk. In terms of style, Genesis is a sparse narrative, especially over matters which might usually pique our curiosity. This turns out to be an advantage, though, because it makes the book more universal, with more interpretations and applications, and thus it's more powerful in engaging and teaching us more fully. I like what Leon Cass says in the beginning of his 670-page commentary, The Beginning of Wisdom, one of my favorite resources on the book of Genesis. He says, I make no claim to a final or definitive reading. On the contrary, the stories are too rich, too complex, and too deep to be captured fully once and for all. This is a guy that's written 670 pages about Genesis, and he's saying, look, I'm just scratching the surface here. Or from Nahum Sarna's commentary, the introduction, it says this volume is not presented as having exhausted our understanding Genesis. Far, far from it. It has only dipped into the boundless world of meaning which dwells in Genesis and brought back a modest but precious cargo. Finally, it's worth noting that Genesis speaks to universal themes. It's both temporal, historical, and universal, anthropological. Or to put it more simply, it's about what happened and what always happens. It's nice to have the history, but it's even better for our current day to know how it relates to our current life, right? This is what happened, and it's what always happens. It therefore also invites reflection on purpose, ethics, politics, and philosophy. You know, philosophy is derived from two Greek words, philo and sophia, meaning to love wisdom. In other words, how to live life well, and Genesis is very helpful on that. 
I mean, think about the big themes and how they relate to everyday life that we have in Genesis. We have cities and civilization. We'll talk about unbridled technology at Babel. We'll talk about civic morality at Sodom. We'll talk about competing cultural visions. Canaan, Babylon, and Egypt are all described here. As Cass notes, though these ancient civilizations are long gone, their animating principles survive. We'll look at crime and injustice. We'll look at justice and revenge with the rape of Dinah. We'll look at hospitality in contrast to fear, hatred, and the abuse of strangers. There's just so much here about everyday life. I also like what Jonathan Sachs says about this. It's not a history book, although it includes history. It's not a science book, even though its first chapter is a prelude to science. It's theological. It's about God and our relation to God. And it's philosophical. What exists, what we can know, are we free? And most important, how should we live? But it's also written non-philosophically as narrative. And thus, it is huge with big themes, but also eminently accessible. As Sachs writes, only the gifted few can fully understand a philosophical classic, but everyone can relate to a story. It's complex and beautiful. It can be read at many levels, and it benefits from repeated reading. So it goes back to what I said earlier, read it differently at different times in life. And so what's that look like for you today? Again, maybe consider a different translation, but consider what it looks like for you to read it in your current context. Bottom line, this is a great book in a great book, the Bible, to fall in love with. And I can't wait to walk through it with you. Good time to take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within God's kingdom. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, I did an introduction to the book of Genesis and how it fits within the entire Bible and the Old Testament in particular, and the Pentateuch while we were at it. And so now we can get to the text. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's start with the first phrase. In the beginning. Cass asks, in the beginning of what? Time? Everything? God's creative activities? And then he concludes, the ultimate beginnings are shrouded in mystery. Cass also points to a rabbinical teaching that the first letter of the Bible is B or Bet, And in English, it's a right bracket. But in Hebrew, you're reading from right to left. So it looks like an open bracket, which would be closed on three sides and only open on the front. And Cass uh, deals with the rabbis here who taught that it's as if we're not permitted to investigate what is above the heavens, below the deep, or what came beforehand. And for our purposes here, we can't know what happened beforehand. Now, what do the scriptures say? Uh, there's a great passage in Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, that talks about wisdom appearing before creation, being around before creation, and it's expressed in poetic terms. I don't, don't read that too literally, but that's a great passage to read here. Or from the Gospels, we have Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and the use of the beginning in Mark's gospel there to start things off echoes what we have here in Genesis 1.1. And of course, we have the famous passage in John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and the life that was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John, in his opening, also harkens back to the beginning of creation, to root Jesus as deity and root him in the creative efforts of the triune God. From there, he moves to the themes of light and life as he runs through his opening in John 1. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul does similar work. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Paul is also interested in rooting Christ as deity uh, with creation. We also have John seventeen twenty four, where Christ says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. And so there, this indicates that the Trinity was loving each other pre-creation and that creation overflowed out of that love, that the events that occur here are coming from the Trinity and coming from an overflow of the love and activity and joy of the Trinitarian God. And back to Genesis 1.1, the, the word for God here, here is Elohim. And so this is an indication of his sovereignty, his power, that he's eternal, that he won't change. Even though creation is about to change, God does not. God shows up 32 times in the first 31 verses here in Genesis 1. As Donald Hay puts it, the whole of creation begins with God and is an expression of his will and purpose. Uh, Elohim is a masculine noun, as is typical for names of God, and that's in contrast to the gender-neutral Yahweh in Genesis 2. It's also in contrast to the common female deities in ancient Canaanite society and in modern earth worship. El is a generic name for a single God. It occurs 35 times in the first creation account, pounding that in. And it's in contrast to the specific names of many gods, as in pagan myths. We'll talk more about this later. For now, it's kept generic. El means God. Im is plural. Think about cherubim as opposed to cherubs. And again, this may be an early allusion to the Trinity, that God is plural in the sense of three persons in one God. Okay, back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the word for created here is bara. It occurs also in chapter 1, verse 21, and three times in chapter 1, verse 27. And that turns out to be a really important point. I'll allude to it uh, briefly in the second half of today's episode and then uh, come up with it some more when we get later in Genesis 1. The other Hebrew word available here, uh, it means made. And so there's a special word being used here in the other two times in Genesis to talk about certain aspects of creation. So that turns out to be a very big deal. God creates, apparently ex nihilo, out of nothing. So he's the true creator. He's bringing something into existence from nothing. We create, but it's always out of something. So God creating as the true ultimate creator creates out of nothing. Eugene Peterson makes also an interesting note that the term bara occurs 16 times in Isaiah, and he notes there that it's used to preach to the exiles 
in what would have been considered Babylonian nothingness. God's going to bring them back from nothing, in other words, to something great, ultimately manifested in the Messiah. So the the use of bara in Isaiah is also really interesting. This is also an important concept because there's no aspect of creation that is itself eternal or And then back to Genesis 1.1, God created, in the beginning, God created the heaven or the heavens and the earth. This last phrase, the heavens and the earth, can be read as separate chronological events that God created the heavens and then he created the earth. Or it can be simply taken as an overview of what's going to take place in this first creation account, chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, It reappears in chapter 2, verse 1 and serves as a sort of bookend. And it also underlines the key word toledot in Hebrew, which occurs 11 other times in Genesis, which will give us 12 sections or accounts in Genesis. The NIV renders it, for example, In chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of, and that's the section marker uh, that's used 12 times in the book of Genesis. And so here it's chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, which wraps up that first account. So the heavens and the earth is used both at the beginning and the end of that account. So the Bible starts with nature, but it will soon move explicitly to history. As such, biblical time is both cyclical as nature and linear as history. Jonathan Sachs says, we are part of nature and its rhythms, but we are also part of history. Biblical time is like a fugue between these two themes, the eternal and the ephemeral, the timeless and the timely. Sachs' reference to a fugue is a musical dance between two musical themes, and here he's arguing that the same thing happens between history and nature, and as time proceeds, it's both the timeless and the timely. Of course, all of this also establishes God as sovereign owner of all, including the land that he would eventually give to Israel, at least for a time. Jonathan Sachs says the claim of the Jewish people to the land is unlike that of any other nation. It does not flow from arbitrary facts of settlement, historical association, conquest, or international agreement. It follows from the word of God. The fact that God creates all, he can decide who to give the land to, that he wants. And ultimately, that's going to be a decision uh, that he gives to Abraham and the people of Israel. Okay, that's the details of verse 1. Let's talk about the style of verse 1 for a second. It's amazingly modest and matter-of-fact, as if it's no big deal. And of course, creation is, in a sense, no big deal to God. But this understatement also underlines the drama and the wonder of God's amazing work here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That's all it says. Now, we're going to get some more detail here shortly, right? Uh, But just verse 1 is is amazing and staggering in its simplicity. Now, in the last half of today's episode, we're going to focus on the Bible and religion versus science and how the two interact with each other. But before we dig into that, uh, we'll talk about evolution in particular, but also the Big Bang and other aspects of science. But before we do that, let's be clear on where ancient biblical cosmology lines up with modern cosmology through science. What have we seen so far that already aligns with modern science? First, the cosmos is not eternal. It had a distinct beginning. We don't know what happened before this beginning. Was it the Big Bang? Was it something else? All we know from the Bible 
uh, is that God started from nothing and started something, right? Uh, and that is consistent with modern cosmology or science. Second, the sun is not divine. Third, the universe was not produced through sexual generation, as was often the case with pagan myths. We'll talk more about that later. And the fourth is we just don't know. We don't know exactly what happened. Uh, the Bible claims there was uh, creation by God at a point in time. And really, science can't take us any further than that either. So all of this lines up. Uh, whatever the debates that religion and Christianity have with science, and I think those are uh, overestimated, blown out of proportion, misunderstood. We'll cover that soon. Uh, there's a lot of agreement that's that's clear and actually comes first from the biblical cosmology before it was ever attested to by modern cosmology and science. So this is a great place to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio, friend me there. Podcasts of uh, other Word Diet episodes, particularly the Book of Revelation, are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Word Diet. In the first segment today, we did an introduction to Genesis. In the second segment, we just finished Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and tore into the details of that. An amazing start to an amazing book. Most of the rest of the way, we're going to talk about evolution and how it lines up with creation or not and uh, cover that in great detail. And then we'll wrap up with some closing remarks about God as creator and what it means for us. The big question we're going to wrestle with here is why do people believe in evolution as a comprehensive explanation for the development of life? Or more often, it's actually the case that people believe so much in evolution as a primary or exaggerated explanation for the development of life. So occasionally you run into people who believe it explains everything. There's actually not very many people like that that take it that far, but I think the general mistake that gets made here is believing in evolutionary mechanisms as a uh, exaggerated explanation for the development of life. Now you may listen to this and think, that's ah, not that big a, a deal to you. Um, because you you know where your faith is, and you believe God created the heavens and the earth, you're not going to move much beyond that, blah, blah, blah. But it is a big deal for evangelism and for ministry, uh, for dealing with stumbling blocks for people, especially those, say, heading off to college. And so it's the sort of thing that you ought to be equipped on, equipped to handle, uh, and to handle it graciously, gracefully, and with knowledge. So I want to deal with the issues, both for those of you who are directly wrestling with this and to empower you to handle it uh, with those around you. So I want to start with the bottom line, and I will revisit it and tweak it a little bit at the end. The bottom line, I think, is that God may well have used evolutionary mechanisms as part of the creation story, but there's a conflict if it assumes away the creator or assumes that man is fully evolved from something else. So we're defining evolution here as survival of the fittest, change over time within existing species, gradual development resulting in new species, and an undirected process over history by which all living species have developed. I think the first thing to wrestle with is why do people believe it? And I think there's a number of angles here. The first is that there's some bias involved or potential for bias. There's people who assume or want it to be true. The first is that there's an assumption, implicit assumption for some people, uh, in naturalism 
and science rather than wanting to rely on the supernatural and miracles. And that's fine, but it is a faith position. A lot of times we assume faith is relegated to the metaphysical realm, but assuming away the supernatural is itself an assumption. And there's a materialistic, naturalistic philosophy and a set of beliefs that are at the root of this. I think it's easy to see this when we think about how we interpret history. There's always faith required because we don't have full knowledge of what happens in history. And what's more historical than the origin and the development of life? And so theories and beliefs are always necessary for drawing inferences from facts. We don't want to go with blind faith when there's reason, logic, facts available. But ultimately, it requires faith to jump from what we know, which actually usually is not very much, to the inferences uh, and our beliefs about life, history, and the like. The second bias in play here is that often there's a bias against God or his standards. And it's not typically about objective evidences. Instead, usually it's a disappointment in life. It's some sort of bad experience with Christianity or religion, or it's often just misconceptions about God. There's the great story about the chaplain who's dealing with the doubter who says, I can't believe in a God who would dot, dot, dot. And the chaplain says, well, I don't believe in that kind of God either, right? A lot of times we're dealing with people who have mistaken ideas about God. We're all theologians. C.S. Lewis said the question is whether we're good theologians or bad theologians. And misconceptions with God can lead to biases that cause one to embrace stories like evolution uh, as an alternative. Really, when you get down to it, it's not so much usually about God's existence, but his presumed or supposed character. And that's why how we believe in God or the things we believe in God are so crucial. Hebrews 11.6 is basic on this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, you've got to believe that God is benevolent. If God is not benevolent or he's not powerful or there's some other key attribute of God missing, then your presuppositions about God are going to be off and you're likely to move to alternative stories as well. The second thing is that there are some general reasons to suspect specific creation theories. Every theory, and we'll talk more about these as we go, all of them leave questions with the biblical account. Uh, Second, the church has a spotty record with science in particular and intellectuals in general. And often the church has been inappropriately hard-headed and hostile. You know, the classic examples here are Copernicus and Galileo, who are persecuted by the church for arguing that the earth rotates around the sun. This is not a biblical position, but if it was held by those in the church, uh, that led to persecution. Not cool. I think second, uh, related to this, is the church's previous inability to interpret scripture on a few matters of science. Uh, So there's uh, debate on this, but, you know, at least at some point, there was a belief that the earth was the center of the universe, and it can connect to a man-centered theology. I've read other pieces on this that say that this has been overstated, but that's a topic for a different day. The church at least has a reputation on this. There's also the urban legend that uh, there were supposed beliefs that the earth was flat. Uh, People reading literally references in the scripture to the four corners of the earth. But the fact here is that no one believed in a flat earth after the Greeks. And really, the Bible actually has some advantages on science. We've already talked about this with respect to Genesis 1-1. Uh, 
Uh, there are a number of things to say here, but a, a couple I like are the Bible talking about countless number of stars. That was a late innovation for science. And pretty famously, the book of Leviticus had some innovations in terms of diet and cleanliness. So it's a mixed bag. It's not all negative, but the, the Christians, the church, the Bible, uh, handling the Bible has not always been done perfectly well. So away from the negative to the positive, I think there are evidences, right, that there's that evolutionary theory seems to look pretty good. There's the surface intuition of natural selection, and there's considerable evidence for what might be called microevolution, defined as adaptation within the boundary of a species. Uh, there is some evidence of what would be called transitional forms, but a good joke to insert here is most, most of those are found in professional wrestling. In any case, uh, what, what do they have? I think on the surface, it looks pretty good. So what do we know then? Well, first, biblically, evolution must be limited at least somewhat. Creation is by God, and we have the special creation of man, which is asserted throughout the Bible. But scientifically, even though it looks pretty good on the surface, if you push below that a little bit even, you find that it's vastly overestimated. There are evidences of microevolution that are fact, but that's different from what might be called macroevolution, which is largely unsubstantiated and fanciful. In the grim fairy tale, a frog is turned to a prince in two seconds. In science, we have a frog turned into a prince in two million years. What seems to be science is actually better understood as a science-flavored, sciency narrative rather than scientific explanation. If you think about what is required for an explanation, you can't just say, well, evolution did it. In this way, it's very similar to, to a theist, right? A believer says, well, I don't know what happened, but God did it. And we wave our hands and say, well, I can't explain it exactly. We just, we just believe that it happened. Well, in essence, that's what the evolutionist is saying as well. I don't, I don't know how A went to B and B went to C and C went to D. I can't explain that. I can't provide a a detailed explanation or understanding. I just have this powerful mechanism and then I wave my hand and that's not explanation, that's narrative. So it's a sciency narrative that is what is believed in, in this case, not science per se, certainly not scientific explanation. Think about the vast details that natural selection has that if it wants to be a comprehensive explanation, it needs to explain innumerable stages of evolution through vital and reproductive organs. How does a vital organ evolve? How would reproductive organs evolve in a way that allowed the new species to continue or the evolved species to continue? What about explaining the development of language and intelligence, conscience, spirit, soul, art? How do we do those things? What, what does natural selection have to offer us on that? G.K. Chesterton is amazing on this in The Everlasting Man. He said, It is the simple truth that man does differ from the brutes in kind and not in degree. And the proof of it is here, that it sounds like a truism to say that the most primitive man drew a picture of a monkey, and that it sounds like a joke to say that the most intelligent monkey drew a picture of a man. It is useless to begin by saying that everything was slow and smooth and a mere matter of development and degree, for in the plain matter, like the pictures, there is in fact not a trace of any such development or degree. Monkeys did not begin pictures and men finish them. We cannot even talk about it without treating man as something separate from nature. In other words, every sane sort of history must begin with man as man, 
a thing standing absolute and alone. Especially to the extent that it's all supposed to be random and undirected, it's just difficult to believe. Robert Walensky said, we've all heard that a million monkeys banging on a million typewriters will eventually reproduce the entire works of Shakespeare. Now, thanks to the internet, we know this is not true. But what if we had more time? Well, it's interesting that the theory has continued to evolve in this regard. There's been a hundredfold increase in estimates of the Earth's age in this century. And coincidentally, that's lined up with when we've recognized that life is more complex, but more time doesn't really solve the problem or the problems with needing an explanation. Do mutations improve a species? Not usually. What about jumps in the process? So there's a debate in the scientific literature between gradualism, where it's all very steady, and what's called punctuated equilibrium, where there's uh, some rapid movements. Rapid movements may well explain it, but you got to have the explanations. You can't, again, just wave your hands and say, well, it must have been uh, these rapid movements over time. Darwin said that evolution occurs too slowly for us to see. Stephen Jay Gould said it occurred too quickly, and so we can't see the evidence of it. And the former runs counter to the fossil evidence. The latter reduces to hand-waving. Both are natural, but they're not particularly scientific. So to me, I guess a bottom line here is that although a lot of people fear evolution, I'd say teach your kids and learn, and you yourself should learn a lot more about evolution. If you want a philosophical book, read a book like uh, Mind and Cosmos by Thomas Nagel, formerly an atheist uh, philosophy professor. Uh, For me, the, the journey started with Philip Johnson's great book, Darwin on Trial. So there's books on the science of it. Uh, But books like uh, Johnson's on the logic of it are, I think, accessible and helpful to lay people. Or more, a little more broadly, Marilyn Robinson says, Many religious people feel fiercely threatened by science. O ye of little faith, let them subscribe to Scientific American for a year, and then tell me if their sense of the grandeur of God is not greatly enlarged. The logic of the complete materialist position, believing that God is not involved at all. God is not available to do any creating. They've got to explain and have beliefs about the complete development of life. That's biology. That's what we've been talking about. But before that, you've got to go to the origins of life, which is the field of biochemistry and the origins of, of it all, which is included in the field of physics. As Frank Peretti puts it, to go from goo to you by way of the zoo. And so the evolutionary gap problems, the materialist position gap problems are going from nothing to matter, from matter to life, and from life to human life. And interestingly, again, we'll develop this later, this is where Genesis uses the three particular uh, verbs, bara, to create, that special form of creation, fills in those gaps. And it's as if God is telling us, yes, that required special creation. And we'll see that verb in chapter 1, verse 1, 21, and 27. As for the origins of life, all this had to start somewhere. Life did not begin randomly from a chemical soup. There's the famous Yuri Miller experiment, but that turned out to be a fraud, and there have been unsuccessful experiments since. And even if they did come up with a way to do this, it would simply imply intelligent design, right? That humans put together an experiment where they created life. We've never seen unlife go to life. Uh, That's the idea of spontaneous generation. And again, this just requires too much faith. It's interesting and ironic that previous scientific beliefs were that garbage turned into maggots, flies, and rats. Or that the co-founder of DNA, Francis Crick, believed in panspermia, that life came from other planets and from aliens. But in any case, you've got to come up with some kind of story, some kind of narrative belief 
uh, if not an explanation for this to count as sign. And then third, where did all this come from? Uh, the Big Bang is one possibility. Right? It's an explosion uh, which creates things. Would it promote order? Uh, that's a little difficult to believe, but still possible. The physics of this are way beyond my pay grade. In any case, there's nothing inherently at odds between the Big Bang and the Bible or God as creator. As Alan Guth notes, science has nothing on what banged, how it banged, or what caused it to bang. The punchline to all this is that the complete materialist position has to have explanations, or at least faith, and I'd say tremendous faith, in the complete development of life, the origins of life before that, and the origins of it all before that. And while one might believe that, it's not a function of scientific explanation. Nothing near that at this point. Great place to take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're introducing Genesis today and started with Genesis 1.1, which allowed us to move into a lengthy description, discussion of evolution and its uh, competition with creation, uh, at least in its extreme forms. Uh, So we want to continue that discussion here in the last segment uh, before we conclude that and move to some final comments about God as creator. We can also go at this from a more positive angle, right? Arguments for the existence of God. So there's what's called the axiological argument, which is from moral law and conscience. Consider Romans 2, 14 and 15. The Gentiles do do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. And so that's the idea Paul writes about, where the conscience testifies to everyone that there is a God. C.S. Lewis uses this in his great apologetic, Mere Christianity. There's the ontological argument, the idea of our purpose, that we have being, Uh, and almost all have believed in a God over time, and that this gives us purpose. There's a cosmological argument from creation. Uh, The anthropic principle is another thing to learn about here, the idea that the universe is finely tuned to sustain life. There's a teleological argument, or intelligent design as it bleeds over into science. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Or back to Romans 1, 20, Paul again, for the, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. When we see complex specified order, we always assume a designer. When we see an arrowhead, we know that's been designed. It's not random. A building presupposes a builder and an architect. They're not put together by tornadoes. Mount Rushmore That didn't just evolve. It's intelligent design. Aaron was the original evolutionist. Remember the golden calf incident? Toward the end, Moses confronts him and he says, So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. There's that hand waving we talked about before. There's all sorts of scientific literature here. You've got the Discovery Institute, mathematician like William Dembski. You've got Stephen Meyer. 
uh, Michael Behe. So there's all sorts of fun science to read on this stuff if you're interested. I think the other thing here is just the historical Christ. If you're going to argue against God, then you're going to argue against Christ as deity. Karen Armstrong said to say that a crucified man was God was blasphemous in the Jewish world, yet this unlikely idea, a complete non-starter in religious terms, blossomed and became a great religion. Religious people are pragmatic. If an idea doesn't yield them some sense of life's ultimate meaning, they simply discard it. And so the non-believer, the atheist, has to not only have a, a fantastic belief of the origins of life uh, and, and the universe, they have to assume away the historical Jesus and his claims to deity and resurrection. I guess the bottom line for me is it just requires way too much faith. To embrace creation and theism is not a blind leap of faith into darkness, but a step of faith into light. It's, it's the evolutionist position, it's the atheist position that is just way too fantastic. Uh, a lot of hand-waving, a naturalism of the gaps. I don't understand, so I'll just throw nationalism, naturalism in there. Paul Copan says, does the skeptic's outlook do a better job of explaining things in the Jewish Christian? We're wiser to accept a more robust, far-ranging, less contrived explanation, since it's more likely to be true, than rely on it could have happened this way scenarios and other thin reads. And at the end of the day, that's all the evolutionist has. The one that the materialist who requires evolution to do all the lifting uh, just requires way too much faith. And so back to the bottom line, let's restate it and tweak it a bit. God may well have used microevolutionary uh, mechanisms as part of the creation story. I like to say that maybe God used microevolutionary mechanisms for 12% or 94%. That's no big deal. doesn't matter. But it conflicts if it assumes away the creator or assumes away uh, man as is not uh, specially created by God, that he's fully evolved from something else. Biblically, the key debate is over origin, not the process of creation. Who is assumed with some on the why and really very little in the Bible on the how or the relevant science? Now, it's also worth saying that despite the huge gaps in the scientific evidences and theory and explanations, God may well have created a universe that could unfold naturally without requiring later miracles. That would also be equally miraculous. Cal Thomas says there's only two models for the origins of humans, evolution and creation. If evolution occurs, it does so too slowly to be observed. Both theories are accepted on faith by those who believe in them. Neither theory can be tested scientifically because neither model can be observed or repeated. John Walton says God controls history, but we do not object when historians talk about a natural cause and effect process. We believe that God creates each human in the womb, but we do not object when embryologists do their thing. We believe that God controls the weather, yet we do not denounce meteorologists. It is unacceptable to adopt an evolutionary view as a process without God, but it would likewise be unacceptable to adopt history, embryology, or meteorology as processes without God. As an economist, all of this interests me from the perspective of public policy and the implications of the belief structure for public policy. Uh, There's a vast literature on this, the historical connections of Darwinism with racism, eugenics, social Darwinism, and the Nazis. And then today you've got connections to euthanasia, abortion, and cloning. The second subtitle of Darwin's The Origin of Species is The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And I've written about this at great length on my blog, Sean's blog, S-C-H-A-N-S-B-L-O-G. Lots of reviews of books 
uh, on eugenics, abortion, and the connections to Darwinism. So it's a, a really interesting issue if you're into the public policy piece of this. In principle, if you believe that man evolved from an animal, you're more likely to behave like an animal. If life is random and without purpose, you're likely to live as if life is random and without purpose. Your beliefs lead in large part to what, how you live your life, how you see life and what you do. Now, it is worth saying that the idea that man is special can be abused as well. It's right. It's easier for the, us to be prideful. It's easier for us to be domineering rather than caretaking of creation and other people, etc. So, you know, errors can go both ways. But the context of materialism is that it causes tons of damage in terms of belief systems and ultimately in terms of behavior. All right, let's close on a more positive note. That God created also teaches us many other things. First, God is purposeful in creating order with freedom out of chaos. He is not a capricious God. Isaiah 45, 18, for this is what the Lord says, He who created, created the heavens, he who is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. He created it. He's the Lord. It has implications for daily life. Second, God is gracious and lavish in his blessings. He is benevolent. This is not the God of deism or certainly a malevolent deity, right? This is the God that's benevolent and wants relationship ultimately with us. We'll see that in chapter two. Third, he's creative. He has personality, including joy. There's intricacy in creation that's amazing. He's detailed. Again, the deist wouldn't care about any of that. And he's extravagant versus creation as mere functionality. A really nice book on this is Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Fun book to read. But I'll read you some excerpts here. She says, If the world is gratuitous, then the fringe of a goldfish's fin is a million times more so. You are God. You want to make a forest, something to hold the soil, lock up solar energy, and give off oxygen. Wouldn't it be simpler just to rough in a slab of chemicals, a green acre of goo? She observes that there are 228 separate and distinct muscles in the head of an ordinary caterpillar. Along with intricacy, there is another aspect of the creation that has impressed me in the course of my wanderings. Look again at the horsehair worm, a yard long and thin as a thread, whipping through the duck pond, or tangled with others of its kind in a slithering Gordian knot. Look at an overwintering ball of buzzing bees. Look at the fruit of the Osage orange tree, big as a grapefruit, green, convoluted as any human brain. Look at a rotifer's translucent gut, something orange and powerful is surging up and down like a piston, something small and round is spinning in place like a flywheel. Look in short at practically anything, the coot's feet, the manis's face, a banana, the human ear, and see that not only did the creator create everything, but that he's apt to create anything. He'll stop at nothing. Why so many forms? Why not just one hydrogen atom? The creator goes off on one wild specific tangent after another or millions simultaneously with an exuberance that would seem to be unwarranted and with an abandoned energy sprung from an unfathomable font. That's the creator God that we worship. That's the good and great God whose creation we live in and live with purpose. Fourth, God is distinct from his creation. There's no new age or pantheism, no room for that here. He's Lord over all creation, so there's no room for polytheism already after one verse. Fifth, he's eternal, powerful, and sovereign over nature and man. 
Psalm 33, 6 through 11, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. As one commentator put it, if indeed God was before all things and made all things, how foolish it would be to have any other gods before him. Or maybe just the bottom line is he is God. I mean, that's in essence what we find from chapter 1, verse 1 forward. Romans one twenty. one more time from Paul, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Two more big picture thoughts to close this out. It's often been said that if you believe Genesis 1-1, the rest is a lot easier. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you accept that, that takes you very, very far. Think about the story of Jonah and the fish prepared by God and how difficult it is to believe that. But then you think, well, we built submarines. And if we build submarines, I guess God could build a fish that would carry a person. So... If you believe God created everything, what can't you believe about a great and good God? The extent of the universe's detail and size is amazing, and God merely spoke it into existence. So what isn't possible with God? When God says, I can do more than you can ask or imagine, how can you not believe that in your own life, in creation, in your own personal life? God can do anything. And finally, back to G.K. Chesterton again. Uh, in The Everlasting Man, he's got a, a wonderful comment here. Chesterton is playing with the idea of the caveman and evolution and creation and God and the like. Uh, and this was written a hundred years ago. But he recognizes that Jesus was born in a cave. While all have realized that it was a stable, not so many have realized that it was a cave. And then in the introduction to the second half of that book is the punchline. This sketch of the human story began in a cave, the cave which popular science associates with the cave man, and which practical discovery has really found archaic drawings of animals. The second half of human history, which was like a new creation of the world, also begins in a cave. There's even a shadow of such a fancy in the fact that animals were again present. This is when Jesus was born. God was also a caveman, capital C, but the pictures that he made have come to life. The single paradox that the hands that had made the sun and stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. This was something that would be much too good to be true, except that it is true. And again, that's the God we worship, not just a God of creation, not, but also a God of relationship. That when the fall of man comes in a few chapters, he's already reaching out through Jesus, the second, the powerful, the capital C caveman, who's going to come into this earth and redeem it and save our lives and give us purpose, and bring us to heaven. What a glorious beginning to the Bible. It already has in it the power of God, and his intimacy, his creativity, and his desire for relationship is already being alluded to. Believe Genesis 1-1, and the rest is cake. It's been great to be with you today. Hope to join you again next time on The Word Diet.